0: You're tuning in to the Late Edition. This is David Lakey from Mountain Stronghold Home Brewing in Natchez, Washington, where my motto is, why brew it if you can't chew it? Welcome, this is the Late Edition for YakimaValleyHops.com. My name is Caleb Schwecke and welcome to the heart of hop country. Thank you for joining us. The Late Edition features casual conversations with everybody from brewmasters to home brewers, hop breeders, hop brokers, hop growers, everybody based here in the hop capital that is Yakima, Washington. Thank you, David, for recording this week's introduction. It was great to see you again. Thanks for stopping in the shop. Speaking of hearing from you, thank you for all the very good feedback that we got on the show, what you want to hear, what you don't want to hear, the kinds of people that you want us to be interviewing, what you want to hear from us. One of the really good suggestions that we got are listener-submitted questions. So here you go. Uh, Next week, we will be sitting down with Junior Loza. He's a generational hop farmer here in the lower valley of Yakima. He's been farming hops forever. His family farm has been around forever. He has a really cool operation. He's gonna be stopping by and talking about rhizome care how to plant rhizomes we're getting ready for the spring so tear up your grass let's plant some hops talk to junior loza email us some questions let us know what you want to know about rhizomes growing backyard hops here you go here's something new check out hannah's hop drop
1: welcome to hannah's hop drop i'm hannah this week's hop is simcoe boom also laurel Check out what else is new at YakimValleyHops.com and SpotHops.com. This has been Hannah's Hop Drop. All rights reserved to Hannah's Hop Drop and Hannah's Hop Drop Incorporated. Please leave all Hop Drop, Spot Hop, Pork Chop, Top Talk to professionals. Like me, Hannah!
0: Well, that was something. Thank you, Hannah, for that. We might need to address your caffeine consumption, but let's get into the meat of this episode. I'm playing solo this week, sitting down with a hop quality expert. He walked half a block up from Hollenberry and Son. Here we go. Let's talk with Zach German.
2: That would be me. Z-A-C, German, G-E-R-M-A-N, I am a, my made up job title at Hollenberry is quality systems because quality kind of is the theme of a lot of what I do, whether it's hop quality or there's the product part of quality, but then there's also the people and process part of quality. So I, I work in systems that cover product and people and process. So kind of all all of the things that don't involve finances and contracts, basically. What what are some of the aspects of quality that you look for when you're testing the hops? Um, mostly, it's a combination of analytical and sensory. The analytical stuff is easier because you quantify it. It, it. You know, you do lab testing; it gives you nice, clean numbers. It's easy to put those on a spec sheet. But then also some more of the kind of squishier things as well. Hop aroma. Um, try and to, especially around harvest, do as much kind of aroma profiling, sensory profiling, as we can do. Try and pick out outliers, things that aren't true to type, so we communicate that to customers. What are some of those things? Off flavors, off aromas? So for everything we do, just kind of a, not really a go-no-go, but it's more of a, just a a course evaluation. Is there a heavy onion garlic, is there a parmesan, cheesy, oxidized late pick character? so at every lot of hops that comes in at harvest we, we we do the chemical testing on but what that means is first you have to prepare the sample so you're grinding up every lot of hops as you're grinding it you're volatilizing it you get the aroma out of it and so it starts by just you know, kind of rudimentary notes on you know, what do you pick up is there any anything that stands out about it and then a number of hops that we take in as well typically experimental hops we'll then do like a full sensory profile on then we put that in front of a panel they have an evaluation sheet where they rate presence absence of fruity character pine character garlic character floral character that kind of thing and that allows us with a big enough sample size that allows us to really kind of create a basically a visual representation of what that hop might roughly smell like okay so Moving from year to year, harvest to harvest, how much does each variety differ? I would say the differences are more within a crop year. Pick date has a huge effect. Some varieties have a, a very large you know, maturity window. Cascade, for example. Centennial, as it goes late pick, you start to get a lot more of that Parmesan character. Uh, a lot of the the newer, fruitier varieties um, have a lot of compounds that go to onion garlic really quickly, uh, so a late pick, Citra, late pick mosaic, go really heavy on your garlic. So, you know, with, within any given crop year, you know, there, there's a, a wide enough picking window that it, it's easier to characterize the differences between early pick and late pick than between 2015 and 2016 just because there is so much within your variant, variation.
0: So do you do testing to determine when the right time to
2: pick is, or do you test after the fact to kind of say like, hey, this was too early, or this was too late, or... For the most part, the, the picking decisions are are coming from the farm. So Hollenberry and Son are not growers, so we work closely with growers, but by not having our own farms, we're not the ones out there making the picking call. Typically that you know, that decision is based on any number of factors. So it can be some, you know, primarily is ripeness. They're trying to pick hops when they're as ripe as possible. But at some point, you know, if you get a little bit behind, if weather conditions are such that you've got multiple varieties ripening at the same time, it can kind of be a bit of a triage for a little bit when there's a bottleneck and maybe you've got a high value variety and a low value variety. So it makes sense to pick the high value variety or the variety that's in greater demand closer to its peak window than a variety that's gonna go into extract or something. In that case, you in choosing between the two, you do a late pick on the extract one. You know how the farmers make those judgment calls about when to pick? Do, are they running analyticals or are they just kind of like going out and squeezing and sniffing and yeah. like? It really de- depends on the, on the grower, but for the most part, it is closer to a, a rub and sniff. Most people do dry matters so they're going as the cones mature, they start to dry out and open up a little bit, and if you measure how much they're drying out, basically if you measure the water content of the cone, you can get an, an indication of whether you're close to your your peak ripeness. But you know, really, as, especially as as such a, a large proportion of hops are going into aroma, a lot of them are being picked for, by aromatic ripeness, not by a, a given metric. So when you talk about ripeness, it's not as simple as just like squeezing an apple to figure out if it's ripe enough. How do you, how do you determine the, the, that ripeness? What is ripening? Yeah, that, <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it in some cases, it's dependent on what the variety is. If the variety is being grown for alpha, ripening is basically when you kind of maximize your alpha acid content. So that can be, in some cases, it's not quite as late as possible, but in many cases, it's pretty close to that. In other cases, you know, if you're talking about an aroma hop, ripening is when it smells the best. Then, you know, different brewers have different target aromas. Some people within a variety really prefer an early pick character, other people really prefer a late pick character. So that, yeah, there isn't really a, you know, there's no universal ripeness. But ideally, it's when you've got you know the most pounds in the field, the most yield, because you don't want to short the field. So it's pretty much when, you know, when you've when you got the greatest you know, pounds per acre and the best aroma. And if you push it too far, then you've got maybe more pounds per acre, but a poor aroma. So you're kind of making the differentiation between alpha hops and aroma hops. Are there specific compounds or things in each of those two that... Are more so you mentioned alpha acids, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what you look for in the alpha hops, obviously. But what contributes to the aroma in the aroma hops?
0: Uh,
2: (laughs) uh, Everything. Um, How many different everythings are there? I mean, mean, so people talk about myrcene. Yeah, in in our lab, we're quantifying uh, 15, 18 essential oils. And so you know, we, we put those on our spec sheets and they're, they're very useful for determining if a variety is true to type. And based on the oils that are in that, based on the, the proportion of the oils that are in there, the, the relative proportion of the oils, can even tell you if there's a late pick or an early pick vari- within that variety, sometimes. But I, what I can't tell you by looking at those 18 essential oils is what it's gonna smell like. Because, you know, mercine, for example, might be 50, 60% of the total oil, but there might be a compound in there that that we're sensitive to in parts per trillion, whereas, or parts per billion, whereas there's another compound that we might be sensitive to in parts per 10,000. And so, you know, human perception of aroma is is so incredibly complicated and is highly, significantly influenced by very volatile compounds that we have very high sensitivity to. So to basically be able to quantify, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of you know, the, these very volatile, very not rare, but very low concentration compounds right now, at least in our lab, we don't have the technology to do it. And it's not economically feasible to do on a, you know, on a harvest scale.
1: Hey, Do you have feet? Do they get cold? Try some hop shop socks. They're like sweaters for your feet. Hop shop socks, hop shop socks, everybody get your hop shop socks. Hop shop socks, hop shop socks, everybody get your hop shop socks.
0: Hop shop socks available for a limited time only at YakimaValleyHops.com.
2: I was having a casual conversation with someone and they mentioned that there's still so there's about like 300 oils or compounds in hops that we identified already but there's also mm-hmm. like 3 to 600 that we haven't even named yet or necessarily mm-hmm. tested for what what yes. is yet to be discovered in yeah. hops that are even been mm-hmm. around for you know decades already yeah. and and even if you know we do add all of those in and we do identify every peak in an analytical profile, it's still not as simple as mapping the concentrations of all these compounds, because the way that we perceive smell is basically a, it's an integration of all of these different compounds. We don't perceive, you know, it, that the whole is not the sum of its parts. There's kind of emergent properties. So there's interactions between these compounds. You know, it's not just that, you know, if there's an apple smell and a peach smell, we don't smell apple and peach together, we might smell burnt tires. And there's, there's so many different hopping techniques and times that you can add the hops. There's so many different, you can dry hop, you can add it, flame out. Yeah, and depending okay. on, you know, where you add your hop, your you're changing the balance of the compounds that are volatilized versus those that are retained. You know, it's the the five minute kettle add versus the 90 minute kettle add. It's not just that at 90 minutes there's less oil, but there are that the oils that are lost, you're losing more of the more volatile ones while you're retaining the less volatile ones. So you're changing your, your profile of chemical compounds, depending on how the hops are added and used. Right, mm-hmm. uh, you, you did mention uh, testing on experimental varieties. Are there mm-hmm. any that you've tested recently that have really stood out or that you're excited about? Probably can't go on record with too many details, but we uh, we did a, a lot of analytical and sensory work for the, um, for the publicly funded hop breeding program, which is a combination of USDA, Washington State University, and and Oregon State University, There's genotypes that are kind of developed within, sort of under the umbrellas of the of those three different organizations, and yeah, there's some really amazing hops in there. Do you know what that single hop experimental
0: was? That single hill was. Tasting? Yeah,
2: so so that was one that we that we provided to them. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's just got a, a rant. There were, there were only three hills of it, so there's only three plants of that variety in existence. So it only produced. I don't know, five five or eight pounds of dried hops, maybe half that much. So, we, you know, we helped to get it harvested and then processed and then did all the analytical and sensory profiling on it. And based on that, you know, it kind of rose to the top as one of the, the really nice looking ones. So we asked Zach if, we, we gave Zach a, know, eight or nine different hops and said, hey, are you, are you interested in brewing with any of these? And he chose a few of them. That was one, one of the ones that he picked. But there, it's way too soon to say, like, if that's going to be, the next thing or even a candidate for the next thing because there's you know there were 300 varieties or something out in the field all in the three hill stage and without having good information on their disease resistances and yields year over year based on three plants it's pretty early to if mm-hmm. that's like the next awesome hop but that was definitely an example of what's out in the field what what's in the pipeline well and even mm-hmm. if even if a hop is super killer but it only you know produces if it produces half of the yield you know as opposed to like the centennial it's not going to get planted totally i mean it, you know at, at this point it's, it's definitely possible for growers to add acreage to their farms but more often than not they're removing acreage and trans you know, and and replacing it with something else so if you're going to rip something out you're going to put something else in that's going to at least make you as much money otherwise why go through the cost and the effort so you know some varieties come in and out of fashion So some just go away because there's less demand for them, but it would be pretty hard to rip out a field of mosaic and plant something else, unless it yields at least as well as mosaic and the return to grower, the the amount that the grower gets paid for it is comparable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the bar is pretty high for introducing new varieties at this point. Well, and that brings up another point too, like where's the saturation point? So we have, you know, hops that taste like oranges and blood oranges and guava and bananas and apples, and Mm -hmm. there's 300 experimentals already in the Three Hills stage. Just with the USDA, there's also, you know, proprietary breeds and all these other Mm -hmm. things. When do brewers, when do they just say, hey... We've already discovered all the flavors and aromas that there are to be discovered in hops. We don't need any more hop varieties. Mm-hmm. Is that a possibility? I, or I, I think the the resistance is definitely not, the the limiting point is not going to come from brewers. At least based on you know, every question I get is you know, like we're talking about right now. Hey, what's the next new thing? What's the next hot new thing? We want we want to, want to try something new. The number of people who have expressed an interest in buying their own hop variety, like oh you know there's only half an acre in the ground, I want it. Like, I, I want to own the rights to that hop. Yeah, everyone, you know, I mean, it, everybody's making an IPA, right? So you wanna make your IPA stand out, you want the next new thing. At least that's one way of doing it. But it, it becomes very logistically difficult for growers. It's much easier to manage large acreage of a few varieties than a small acreage of a whole lot of different varieties. The logistics of picking, kilning, baling, all of these things, get a lot harder when you've got a lot of different varieties that you're trying to manage. So I, I think that is a, I, I think the, the limitation on having 20 new varieties is much more coming from growers than it is from brewers who, who would probably welcome more into their portfolio, but at the same time, you know, might not be committed to a new hop in the long term. They, they want a new hop to play with, but you can only integrate so many new hops into your, your flagship beers otherwise it's just a one-off or something everybody's curious for a one-off but. well uh, yeah actually that's a good point are are these brewers with these new hops are they creating new flagship beers or are they just creating one-off seasonals you know with this super rare limited hop that won't ever be like fully integrated into the market or well I mean I think will they it, always it, it, be it... chasing the next new hop I mean, it depends. So, I mean, the Super Rare Limited makes me think about Galaxy. And, you know, yeah, everybody loves it, but very few people are willing to build a brand around it because the supply is so uncertain. It seems like people are starting to build brands around Comet. It's starting to gain some traction. Supplies, supply could be ramped up to meet demand, it seems like, just because it doesn't have the the limitations that the Galaxy would. It kind of seems like... The smaller the brewery or even home brewers, it seems like they have more access to these smaller niche varieties because for the small experimental varieties, there's not going to be enough for the larger scale breweries to brew anything of significance with. So do with these experimentals and even Galaxy, Nelson Savin, you know, crazy rare hops like that, do these smaller operations, do they have an advantage now? Um... I mean, it's hard to say because you, you know, if you total up all of the craft market, and you know, I, I can't quote numbers, but you know, if you total up a whole, a very large number of people buying in small quantities, it still, you know, is not that much compared to what a, you know, a couple of the very large breweries could do in terms of total hop supply, in terms of total contracting on that variety, and it takes a a lot more overhead to manage a lot of small transactions. Yes, you can have a variety that, that's in fairly limited supply and it, and it can be successful in, uh, among smaller buyers. But again, it kind of goes back to it being easier for the grower to grow large acreage of single varieties. And that kind of comes by having some, some large contracts driving it. I mean, not the case for everything. There have definitely been experimental hops that are, as I understand it, in the release pipeline that have been you know, initially released in the, the homebrew market. HBC 438 is is a prime example of that. As, as far as I know, that's still kind of in the pipeline, but hasn't had commercial release yet. But that was initially released, I think, at the you know, National Homebrewers Conference a couple of years ago for exactly the reasons that you said, that it there wasn't a lot of it to go around, but it was an interesting hop. So why not give it to a whole bunch of people rather than one or two key accounts? I think a lot of the success of varieties is how much buzz do they generate. There have been some amazing varieties that have come out of the public breeding program, but they haven't really gained. There hasn't been a there hasn't been much of a pull on them from brewers, and there hasn't been a large push on them with like a, a much of a marketing campaign. So I think you know, putting those two things together, if you can succeed in releasing it to a lot of small accounts. Then you know that you know, sort of a very like word of mouth type, very like grassroots marketing campaign. There, I mean, homebrewers are a perfect target for that, perfect market for that. And it doesn't take a lot of hops to do that. You can get a lot of pull traction as they, yeah. as as those hops kind of spread around and people start talking about them. Do you think the public breeding program lacks support in general? Because no, of- no I definitely wouldn't say that. Although it's getting a major infusion of support right now. Uh, the Brewers Association just announced that that they're—I'm not sure if "grant" is the right word—but that they're supporting financially supporting the USDA to hire a public breeder. Uh, the public breeding program, part of the public breeding program, has been without a breeder for a while now. So they, the the BA has found a way to help fund the USDA's hiring of a of a public breeder. So yeah, there's definitely that that program is kind of is going to be relaunching here in the very near future. Excellent. What you said that there've been some really good hops to come out that haven't gotten the pull, are there any that really stick out that you think have been overlooked or haven't gotten there? Uh, I mean I, I don't want to call any of them out in particular. I mean I, personally I really like Tahoma Um, I couldn't tell you exactly the release year on it, but it's fairly new and doesn't seem as though it's gained a lot of traction, but whenever I smell it, I think, gosh, you know what, why isn't this hop out there more?
1: Hi, Pa. What you doing? Well, son, just brewing some beer. Gee, Pa, that sounds swell. Sure is, son. Want me to tell you about my first homebrew? Boy, do I. You still remember it? You always remember your first homebrew. I can't wait for my first homebrew. Someday, son, but it's nothing to rush. Proper homebrewing is a serious matter. It takes time, patience, and dedication. And you always need to practice safe brewing. Safe brewing? Brewing isn't something you just want to rush into. If you don't know what you are doing, you run the risk of infections, high diacetyl, or worst of all, low IBU syndrome, or Libus for short. Libus? Sounds scary, Pa. Sure is, son. Sure is. Well, but you're safe from Libus, aren't you, Pa? Ha! Your old man is smart and shops at Yakima Valley Hops, so I've never been short of IBUs. In fact, my IBUs are so high, your mother makes me brew in the garage. Do you or someone you know suffer from libus? Libus is a serious condition that affects brewers nationwide, but there is hope. Talk to a local brewmaster to see if Yakima Valley Hops are right for you.
0: Four thirty-eight.
2: That was a NeoMexicanus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it shared some genetics with yeah. Ge- NeoMex. I'd, I probably shouldn't go on the record with that. So I, okay, yeah, I'd, I used to work with Sbg and, oh, and okay. had some information, but don't anymore. And yeah, I got you. Anyway. Okay, okay. Yeah. okay. But looking at NeoMexicanus, I do know there are some companies on record, you know, mm-hmm. crossing it or trying single NeoMex varieties. W- mm-hmm. What does that? What does that genetic introduction look like to the to the hop scene? Because it's a completely separate. Yeah, I mean it. It's funny. I mean, I in a lot of cases, I can I can taste what I would describe as a Neomex character. I'm trying to put a finger on exactly how I describe it, it's been a little while. Again, since I've played with any of them. It's kind of a tanginess to it. It's, all, it's not really a mouthfeel, but for, for me, it's more of a texture than just saying, oh, it's lime and coconut or, you know, kind of an obvious aroma or, or taste descriptor. It's almost more of like a sensory or, you know, sort of a, a feel than a, a smell. But, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge of the Neomex varieties. Okay. Okay. Kind of an off-the-wall question. Anecdotally, people have said that fresh hop, wet hop beers
0: get you more inebriated than regular. Is there any truth or any science to that? I mean,
2: in personal experience? Or? Uh, well, I mean, so, uh, z- I, mean, like zan- is, hop, I mean, like, xanthohumol
0: is, yeah, I mean, xanthohumol is, you know, estrogen, right? And mm-hmm. it, it hits humans as estrogen. So, are there any compounds
2: that? I mean, could- I, I I certainly couldn't point at anything in particular, but there's there's a lot of alkaloid type compounds in hops that I I don't know how they necessarily change when you kill in the hop versus not. But you know, there, there's a lot of funky stuff in hops, and when you when you add them at the rate that you add fresh hops, you're extracting a lot of funky stuff, and. Yeah, yeah. There could. I would believe based on how I feel after drinking a lot of fresh hop beer that there's some funky stuff in there. Because yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of research has gone into like uh, trying to find cannabinoids or THC in hops because mm-hmm. of their close, you know, relationship to cannabis, but there hasn't been anything found yet. Mm-hmm. Have so I don't know, but have studies in. Cannabis also shown that there's other, you know, maybe not truly, maybe not psychoactive in the sense that THC is psychoactive, but there are other influencing compounds in in cannabis other than just THC and you know, and the CBDs that are gaining attention, right? Right. right. I mean, again, you know, a, a lot of things in small concentration that additively might do something. Uh, I don't know. Are there any? Myths about hops that need to be squashed? Cropier. Cropier with pellets. Cropier with Uh, pellets. Freshness, I mean, freshness is important, absolutely. But in my testing, pelleting and proper packaging absolutely locks in freshness. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I, I think, particularly among less experienced brewers, there's this insistence on having the absolute freshest hops. I mean, it's 2018 now, 2018 hops haven't been grown yet. They won't even start coming up for a few more months. I've already gotten requests for 2018 hops. Yeah. And it, it doesn't work that way. And even if it did, I mean, 2017 was a good year, but I mean, you, you asked me, are there trends over years? And I, I can't speak to that, but you know, w- within some varieties, There can be better years versus worse years. And I'm just saying hypothetically. So, for example, cascade alphas were pretty low in 2016 and pretty high in 2017. I'm not going to speak to the impact on alpha versus aroma, but at least analytically, like, 2016 was a low alpha year. 2017 was a higher alpha year. Aromatically, if you preferred the 2016 low alpha cascades, I would say that those are probably still better right now than a year newer 2017 cascades. You know, basically the how beat up the hop gets through picking you know, through picking and processing. so you know, if there's a, a high impact picker versus a very gentle picker, or if they're kilned at a high temperature versus killed at a lower temperature, those things can kind of set their trajectory for how rapidly the hop will decline. But then once they're in pellets, once they're in nitrogen evacuated bags, oxygen evacuated bags and in you know, at low temperature they're not changing over reasonable over even three, years. three if, years. If you, I mean it you know it depends on the variety and all that kind of thing but um, basically the idea that if you have a 2016 hop that you like and the 2017 crop years are available don't go flopping flocking to the 2017's because they just because they're fresher they there's absolutely no guarantee that they'll be superior to the 2016 that you're already brewing with, or at this point even the 2015 that you're already, that you're currently brewing with. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned oxygen, you mentioned temperature. Are those the two major you yeah, know degradation the, factors? Yeah, I mean po- post processing, those are the major things that'll that'll break down hops. Keep keep them cold, keep them out of oxygen. A lot of times I'll I'll get questions about why. Well, you know, most, of, you know, most people are packaging hops you know, at a commercial scale and at a larger scale anyway, 22 pound foils. Uh, so some, in some cases, 11s or 44s. But anyway, if you use a partial bag, how do you preserve it? And the suggestion I always give is put it in a five gallon bucket and trickle a little bit of CO2 into it. The CO2 will form a blanket over it. It'll push the oxygen out. And then you've got it in a sealed container that you can, you know, or whatever size bucket it takes. But basically purge the oxygen out using some CO2 Keep it in the freezer or the refrigerator. Don't don't have concerns about hop quality, and then have open bags of pellets next to your hot kettle, leaving them there for three days. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's one of the biggest, most frequent questions that we get. Mm-hmm. How do, how do you store pellets, and then cropier differences? Like there can be cropier differences, but more likely, what you're seeing with a cropier difference is a difference of pick date or a different farm potentially even a different region, Washington versus Oregon. Um, most likely you're not seeing the, the crop year differences are swamped by pick date or region or grower, that kind of thing. Well, what are the differences between regions? Are, are they noticeable? Are they? They're they're noticeable if you've got a big enough sample size. You know, if you're looking at 30 Washington hops versus 20 Oregon hops, you, you might start to see patterns. Why, why are so many hops grown in Yakima? Hops take a lot of water and they, it's not really that they don't like humidity, but that the diseases that thrive in higher humidity are, the diseases that affect hops in many cases do better in higher humidity. So hops in Yakima are in here, by, with the, the dry, with the desert conditions in Yakima, the disease pressure on hops tends to be lower, but they they also don't like really really wet conditions. I've spoken to some growers in the Midwest and in the Northeast who have, you know, after a couple of rough winters, had so much water in their fields that they actually had to put drainage tiles in their fields to get to get their soil to dry out, so that the hops would start growing. And we we have the opposite problem in Yakima. You know, we we run drip lines along the rows. And so all of the root structure, so it, it's it's wet in the row, but it's very dry between the rows. And so all of the roots end up basically concentrated along the rows, not basically using the entire soil profile. So then all of the nutrients have to be fed through the drip line as well, um, because the hops are are not using the entire soil bank. They're just using the column, essentially, under the under the row where the water is provided. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, so then what what are the what mainly do you feed the hops then? I mean, nitrogen, phosphorus? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the guy to ask, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, NPK would be the big ones, but you know, there's a lot of stuff being done with micronutrients, a lot of stuff with fish emulsions. You know, every year there's a lot of new stuff being introduced, you know, new, some of it snake oil, some of it might be the next greatest thing. You, you do kind of take it for granted when you're here because because it is such a small, of the world in Yakima but it it is I mean not to discredit the other hop growing regions but it really is the focus of North American hop growing well in 2017 it was you know seven over 75% of the yield closer to 80 Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I mean yeah, we're working closely with people in Oregon and Idaho and there's awesome stuff going on there just because the volume isn't there doesn't mean that it's lesser it's just a little bit away.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this edition of The Late Edition. A big thank you once again to Zach German. Thanks for taking the time to come up and chat with us. Thanks for taking the time. It was really good talking with you, learned a lot. Now comes time for a little homework for you. Send us your questions. Once again, we are talking with Junior Loza. Next week, Tuesday, we'll be sitting down then. The episode should be published by Friday, hopefully, but we need to hear from you. Send us your questions. What do you want to know about growing hops in your backyard and your front yard and your side yard because you're gonna grow hops everywhere this year. Send questions to Caleb, K-A-L-E-B, at yakimavalleyhops.com. Original music, once again, provided by Yakima Valley Hops' own Steve Quantrell. Thank you so much, Steve. Awesome beats, as always. This week, voice work, or voice play, depending on what you want to call it, done by Corey Hacker, Steve Quantrell, as well. Thank you so much. See you next week, happy Bruins.